How's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 244, and I had a conversation with Sheena Renee. Sheena Renee, then Eastburn, was sentenced in 1995 to life in prison with no chance of parole for her part in the murder of her ex-husband, Tim Eastburn, at the age of 17. The evidence pointed to three teenage suspects, 18-year-old Matt Myers, 19-year-old Terry Banks, and Sheena Eastburn, who was dating Terry at the time of the murder. Sheena had been just 15 years old when she married Tim and was 16 when they divorced. She was convicted as a minor to life without parole, and it wasn't until the Supreme Court deemed such sentences against minors unconstitutional that Sheena would see her sentence change from murder in the first degree to murder in the second with a possibility of parole. Now her life is dedicated to helping young people redirect their lives and avoid the mistakes she's made. She's also putting together a curriculum for families who have a member heading to or um, perhaps being released from prison. We had an exceptional conversation. She was forthright and uh, very descriptive in the process of who she was and who she has become. And uh, I, I really appreciated her uh, her honesty in talking with me. As many of you know, this is a subject I'm interested in. And anytime I get to talk to somebody who has either been incarcerated and been released or uh, somebody who's working with people who are incarcerated, I definitely want to have those conversations. So uh, I look forward to you hearing this as well and learning more about Sheena Renee and her life. In other news, of course, social media, Hey Human Podcast, is on Instagram and Facebook. You can find my personal social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. Speaking of heyhumanpodcast.com, if you go on the website, you will find a links page that has information about every episode and about my guests and things we've talked about things that uh, pop up in the conversation and also other articles that might are secondary to whatever we talked about. So definitely check that out. You'll also find a merch page there on the heyhumanpodcast.com website. There is a safe and secure storefront. You can find t-shirts and hats and masks and all sorts of things on there. So please check that out. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to know more about me and what I do, you can go to susanruth.com. You can also sign up on a mailing list there and there's information about my music and my paintings and all this kind of thing. Um, if you are into music, go to iTunes and check out Susan Ruth and you will find four of my records on there. Also, I wanted to let everybody know that I've just been asked to do TEDx Nashville. So that's exciting. I don't know any of the details yet. I'm appreciative to have been asked and looking forward to telling you more about that. What else? I was interviewed recently on another podcast called Human Amplified. I'm on episode 60, so you can find that wherever you find podcasts. And I think that's it for the modern news front, a la Susan. Um, stay safe out there. Uh, hopefully these vaccines are rolling out and they will get more. And pretty soon we will get back to life as we once knew it. Can't wait for that to happen. Take care of each other. Love each other. Thank you for listening. And uh, here we go. Sheena, Renee, welcome to Hey Human Podcast. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you doing? Good. Lazy yeah. today, but good today. <laughs> You know what? Every day is the weekend. Every day is the week weekday. These days, it doesn't really make a difference. Where Where are you right now? Are you in Missouri or? I live in Missouri. Yes. So you were born and raised. Born and raised in Missouri, and still here. Yeah. <laughs> Let's take you back to the beginning of you. Uh, what part of Missouri did you grow up in? I grew up around Stella, Missouri, and Neosho. Is that a Is that a small part? Is it a big city? Uh, Stella's like 135 people. I think that's counting the cats and dogs. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
what was that like as a kid where everybody knows you and everybody knows your business and all that? Uh, well, as a kid, it really doesn't matter because you're a kid, but you know, the whole town raises you because anything you do, you know, somebody's calling your parents. So, um, there was that, but living in a small town was good because you just, you had a lot of close friends where, you know, maybe a bigger city, you wouldn't. And, and everybody, every neighbor helps another neighbor. So I loved growing up kind of in the country. Yeah. Are you more in the city now? No, I'm still in the country. Yeah. I'm a country girl at heart. Okay. I get that. You got married at age 15. I just turned 15. Yes. How does that come to happen? Well, I had a really rough childhood um, before my mother and had her own issues. And before she was able to take me, I had lived in a home where sexual abuse had happened and abuse happened. So by the time I got a little older, um, I was one of those rebellious, angry teenagers. And I met a man that was almost 21 who seemed like the person who could rescue you from the world. And so uh, I met him and two months later, I decided I was going to get married. No. So were you in foster care at first? No, I lived with my grandparents and family. Okay. So abuse happened within the family unit? Yes. As it often does. Yeah. Yes. It was a, it was a person that was married into the family. Yeah. Okay. Got it. You got married at 15. So you met him at this, you were just like, I met you. I'm in love. This person's going to change my life. And that's that. Well, he was two months later. He was that great guy that, you know, spoiled me rotten. I grew up very poor and he spoiled me rotten. And he was also the town drug dealer. So, and I had addiction. So it was like, I met the man of my dreams, you know? <laughs> yeah, I get it. Uh, and that was Tim Eastburn. Yes. How long were you courting before you got married? And also was he doing drugs as well or just dealing? Cause sometimes dealers don't do their. Yeah, he didn't do a lot. He drank a little bit and smoked weed, but he wasn't really big into any of the harder stuff he sold. But he was, um, he was just, he was such a great guy at first, you know, that, that knight in shining armor that I thought would get me out of my home. I didn't have to listen to my parents no more. I could do what I wanted to do. And I soon found out that that is not how that was going to work out. Were your parents supportive of you getting married at such a young age? No, no, they weren't. But I was, I was so angry from my early childhood that I was kind of like, if you don't let me get married, I'll go run away from home and you'll never see me again. So it kind of gave them no option. You know, it's either you let me do what I want to do or you'll never see me. Did Tim get along with your parents? Oh yeah. He got along with them. Great. He was the guy that everybody loved, you know, um, ever i always think about when people hear about serial killers not that he was a serial killer but they're always like oh they were the best guy they were the nicest guy and nobody would ever thought they would do things like that it was kind of reminds me of that mm-hmm. what drugs were you doing at the time i was a, i was into pills and drinking a lot um xanax valiums anything downers and i was always drinking really hard liquor yeah did you ever confront your family about the abuse um they knew a lot of my family knew from being in a small town though especially in the early 90s i remember showing up with a black eye one time and somebody said well why didn't you black her other one maybe she would have listened more so that was the mentality back in those days uh it was still you know you can beat your wife lightly type moments so it it wasn't a big deal as far as like domestic violence is is People hear you more. People pay attention more. Back then, it was just made a joke because nobody knew how to deal with those situations. So they just made a joke out of it. Yeah. Uh, what, did Tim start getting less nice then as the relationship went on? It took about two months before the real Tim came out. And uh, uh, it was our probably one of our first fights. And I remember it was the 1990 ice storm that Missouri had. And we got in an argument. 
I can't remember what, but I remember he threw me out of the house and I had just a little skirt on, a little shirt on, and it was an ice storm and he locked me out of the house and left me out in freezing weather. And uh, that was the first of many to come. And when did you decide that you didn't want to be in the relationship anymore? Oh, right after that. <laughs> right after that. Okay. Right after I, that. I read that you were divorced by the age of 17. Yes. Uh, I actually got divorced almost two years after we got married. I finally convinced, I had to convince him to get divorced. Um, and it's a weird way I got divorced. I had to, I had emergency surgery and I had to convince him we would save more money if I was a juvenile and then he wouldn't have to pay that bill because the state would pick it up. And he's like, okay, but we're getting remarried. And so that's how he was always about saving money somewhere. And that was your out. That was my out, but it wasn't my out because even after that, I got restraining orders. Um, he still never left me alone. He, he turned violent then. Yes. He would go to my friends and family's houses and threaten to kill them. If they didn't tell him where I was, um, many people, he would, he would just threaten them. And like a few weeks before the actual crime happened, he took me in the woods with a shallow grave and said that he could shoot me and nobody would even know it was him. Wow. He was That's... a black belt in Taekwondo and I was a 15 year old girl. He was a 21 year old man. Sure. So which no I don't know what the laws are in Missouri, but I'm, I guess when, when you're married, it doesn't, it doesn't really look to that, but before you're married, that's certainly statutory rape. Yes. And, you know, I was sexually abused by him as well, because even if I didn't want to, um, he would tell me that I'm his wife and I submit and I do what he says and that it's not rape because we're married. Unfortunately, that is a, a battle cry for a lot of men abusers. Yeah. yeah. And of course, it absolutely is rape. If you're not, if you are not willing. When did you that later? Yeah. Yeah. So when does Terry Banks come into the picture? So it was, I finally got moved out and got moved away for a little while. And I met Terry Banks probably, it was about two weeks. Actually, it was 11 days before the crime happened. And this by this point i am partying nonstop. i am not sober from the minute i wake up in the morning till i pass out at night i'm not and you're sober. how old are you at this point i'm 17 just turned yeah. 17 okay. and uh so because about my 17th birthday was a big party on all the way till i got arrested and uh I was trapped. I couldn't get away from this man. Now I met this new guy, you know, and I'm thinking, Oh, he's great. And, uh, but still my ex-husband was still following me, still threatening me, still, you know, telling me that I needed to come home that, you know, I was his and no matter, no piece of paper would ever keep him from his wife. Was he still attacking you? Was there consensual moments of intimacy? Was it just, was he at just the, attacking? At the, last, at the last month, there was no intimacy, no, no rape or any of those things that happened that last month because I would try to stay away. If I did see him, it was in public. Um, so I was able to stay further away. And did you tell Terry all about what had happened? And Yeah, you know, when you're drinking and you, he calls and something happens and I would go on a rampage about he wasn't going to do this to me no more and I didn't need this anymore. So Terry would hear all of that. Yes. Take me through the night or the day. I don't know if it happened during the day or during the night of, of when everything went down. Uh, getting up, drinking all day as soon as it starts. And that was the day that I tried, that I started really doing Xanax and drinking some hard liquor. And I, and there's spot it's spotty all throughout that day because I was so intoxicated that I just remember that there was times that we were, we would chat about things and then there was times that would come up and it was in a moment that one of them said something. I wonder what it would feel like to kill somebody. I jokingly said, you could kill my ex-husband and it all started from there. So and really, it, it was in the moment. It wasn't like a long drawn out plot. No, 
it was definitely in the moment in a situation and at 17 you really don't ever think those things are going to happen you don't you don't think the long-term consequences um death especially back to me back then wasn't even reality uh but as the day wore on the more drinking the more drugs and then it changed to oh we'll just rob him oh well we'll just do this and by the time we get down there all hell breaks loose and uh and he got shot and after he shot i tried to save him there was nothing i could do it was already too late and Did terry was- terry pull the trigger yes yeah and there was another guy there right yes his best friend matt yeah Wow, that must have all happened very quickly. It happened faster than I even realized anything could happen. And it's too late by the time something does happen. But and it was it was uh it was so surreal. It's like how you see it in the movies. Like you're almost watching yourself, but you don't realize it's really happening. It's 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 hard to explain. What did you do next? Um I called my mother my mother came and picked me up and i told her what happened and she called the police and what happened to terry and matt where'd they go they took off and then i was arrested and and then they got caught and then uh and then it went all the hell after that too (laughs) how do you mean uh, well when the cops got us they had made this whole story and concocted most of the cops that investigated my crime was Tim's high school buddies. So he had went to high school with all of them. Um, from day one, the, the way that they handled the case, the way they handled me, all the different situations uh, broke many of my rights. And so it just started from there. And I was 17. Of course, I didn't know anything. Scared to death of what just happened. Still trying to process that Tim was gone and that this all happened, you know, cause you're not thinking that just at 17, you're not thinking of the long-term consequences. You're not, your mind is not developed enough. Really. I don't believe now being older and wiser to realize consequences, not only to what happened to me, but what happens to his family, the people around us, my family, all the victims, you don't, you don't consider all that in a moment. And the police believed at the time that you all had plotted this over a period of time, correct? Right. And you right. were like a honeypot leading him to slaughter, as it were? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, they, and they knew that that's not how it happened. Even the sheriff that arrested me, the original sheriff, he kept telling him, this, this was like a moment crime of passion. This was not a thought out plan. And he became my biggest supporter to help me get released. The original sheriff that arrested okay. me. So you stand trial and are convicted and sentenced to life in prison as a life 17 year old. Parole. Life without parole as a 17 year old child. Yes. Yeah. And well, and when I was in county jail, um, I was raped by a jailer while I was there. And so they wanted their case. It was election year. (laughs) Worst time for things to happen. Um, And the prosecutor told the sheriff, make it disappear. Because it's going to mess up my murder case. And so they also hid that for 17 years before that finally came out in the open too. I want to get to that for sure. And I just want to get the timeline straight. So how long were you in lockup when that occurred? I had been there when it occurred, probably about a year. Okay. And did it happen more than once? Yes. And I assume that in a situation like that, since he uh, has the keys to the kingdom, as it were, you basically go along to get along. Yeah. Yeah. I learned early from my husband not to fight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do want to come back to that because I think it's important to talk about, but I do. uh, So your type of sentencing was unconstitutional because kids' brains aren't even fully developed till they're, you know, 25, 23. Um, so how did, how did that all come down? Like, had you been appealing all along or? I went through my appeals faster than anybody ever had. It was like, um, like there was a lot of higher connections going on 
And within three years, I had finished every appeal. <clears throat> there was none left, but clemency with the governor. And we all know how quickly they'll give those out. So I was basically just at 17, 18, 19, and finally at 21, realized that I was probably going to die in prison. What is life like for an everyday girl in prison? Are you, do you find other people your age? Are you protected by older mom-like figures? What happens? When I went to prison, I was lucky. Um, some people are not so lucky, especially in a women, men's prison. Women's a little bit different. My, I went in and there was an older OG, we call them old gangsters. And she took me under her wing being a young pup coming in with a lot of time. Um, and for some reason she just had a heart for me and I feel like that was God protecting me from early on. And she started schooling me how to do my time. And, and so I hold, I hung out with all the old heads and they schooled me and taught me a lot of different ways, how to hustle in prison, how to stay safe, who to fight, when to fight, you know, what battles to fight. And so I got lucky in that area. When I first went to prison, not every person that comes in those bars when they're young like that does, because I've seen a lot of other things happen with people. Yeah. Did you ever get into fights? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is yeah. that like they, they portray it on, on film that it's to, you know, maintain a sort of a dominance or to stay safe in the long run? Is that? Um, it can depend on a situation. It can just de depend on if it is a dominant stain. It can also depend on the drama. Females are very dramatic. Um, so uh, it can depend. When I first got down, I seen what they call a blanket party. They wrapped around a blanket around a girl, beat her with some locks because she was talking to the officers too long. So that could have considered been snitching. Um, I seen a female cut up a male officer because he got smart with her within my first month in prison. So, I mean, it's very unpredictable and it's all kinds of reasons. It can be they have mental health issues. It can be because they had a bad phone call with their family member and you have to be the one that, that gets it. And it could be you took my canteen or you owe me money. So you went into prison with a drug problem. How did you deal with that? Well, I just didn't do drugs no more for a long time. And then I started doing drugs in prison. I started smoking a lot of weed in prison doing things like that. Um, my first 10 years, I was a heathen. I was a 17-year-old kid with a death sentence, so I did not care. Is there a dog with you? Yes. <laughs> I thought I heard a dog. Let me see. Uh, hold on. Let me show you my video. Let me flip my phone. Oh, I'll try to turn it around. How do you do that? He's got a little cold, bless his heart. Aww. Oh, well, here, I'll just turn. There they are. Oh, oh my goodness. There's two. Three. Holy moly. Three pit bulls. And yes, they're my so baby. Cute. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. How in the world does someone smoke pot in prison when it's so, the, the odor is so specific? Oh, lots of baby powder, perfume. Um, so you take deodorant, shave it down, and you spray it all, you wipe it all over your walls, but mainly if you go out to the yard and just try to do it in the yard or a hot steaming shower. That makes sense. Where there's a will, there's a way. Well, you will find a way in prison. It's always cat and mouse in prison. What can I get away with that the officers are not going to be? And I'm sure they had favorites that they looked the other way for. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. It's always a uh, like I said, cat and mouse, and they do have their favorites. They have the ones that they like or don't like. Stop it. Dogs. <laughs> I know. They're having a big time. They want yeah. to be wherever the action is. That's the nature they, of dog. <laughs> yes. They're so you, They're so cute. I like pities. They're sweet. When, yes. uh, when you realized that you're, you had used up all your appeal, what, what where were you then mentally and what was the plan? Um, Especially because you're like, this is my life now. This is where I'm going to be for the rest of my life. At first I was very suicidal and even had considered many times that by the time I've reached this age, I'm going to kill myself or, you know, uh, all those kind of situations. I'd stayed in trouble. I got in a lot of trouble for a long time. And I, I remember a captain telling me one time, I will always win and you will always lose. 
So you know what? Figure that out. No matter what, I go home at night. I could stick you in the hole. I don't care. I'm still going to go home at night. And that didn't kind of sink in until a couple of years later, but I, I remember that statement. And then um, in 2004, they started this class. It's called Impact on Victims of Crime. And so I was really angry till about 2004. Angry, upset. Uh, it was me, me, me. You know, I didn't pull the trigger. I didn't make nobody kill nobody. I don't know why I'm here. Uh, it was a conversation. We were drunk. We were high. I mean, I just had all these excuses of different things and, and no accountability or responsibility. As a kid, you, you don't. It's everybody else's fault. Um, and yeah, I even class. as an adult. <laughs> for a lot of people. <laughs> yes. Well, I took this class and it's called Impact on Victims of Crime. And they brought this woman in and her husband had been murdered by some teenagers. And she had forgiven them, you know, and she went through this. But when I seen that mother up there talking about losing a loved one to murder, I immediately seen my mother-in-law. And even though this was a woman, we never got along. I all of a sudden I seen every one of my family members and his family members. It wasn't about my abuse anymore. It wasn't about what he did to me or what I done. It was about what impact I had left in their lives by a choice I made in a moment. And that changed me in prison. That's, that's what turned me around when I was like, I finally was like, you know, I might die here, but I'm going to be the most successful person I can be while I'm here. And I can change and try to help as many women as I can not to come back here and make these same choices or same mistakes. And so that became my focus. And so as I was going, whatever class I took, I started teaching. I took ICBC, I became a facilitator. I took anger management, I became a facilitator. Every class I took, I became the teacher because I felt like that was me giving back, even if it was inside that community. Yeah. The only thing I, could do. I could never, ever take away the pain that I created. So this was a way to give back, hopefully. Well, that captain must have noticed a big difference. Oh, yes, he, he did. They, uh, staff, all staff noticed a big difference. It took a minute for them, me to prove myself because I was very disrespectful to staff. I would cuss them out in a minute. Um, I didn't care about other offender spillings. Uh, and so uh, there was one time that uh, one of my friends actually stopped me from assaulting an officer. Okay, I lost my last appeal and she said something the wrong day. And I was like, you know what? I'm dying here anyway. So what's whatever. And, and a couple of my friends grabbed me and stopped me. But it, it, it ha almost happened like that. What did uh, your mentor in prison, what did she think about your change? Um, I had a lot of mamas and aunts and sisters. We become family while we're there. And especially if you grow up together, like I had two very close friends. We did our entire time together, like over 20 years together. Um, and I, they were just proud that I had changed. They were proud that, you know, that I finally seen something different. And I mean, I wasn't perfect. I still had my moments. I still got violations. I still got into arguments or fights. And, but it got better as time as I grew up and matured, I'd say about my late twenties, early thirties, I started realizing what life was really about as well. Did you spend a lot of time in the hole when you would get I in trouble? Some time in the hole off and on. Uh, but back that's when isolation, I, right? That's yes. what that means. Yeah. Ad ad administration segregation. Um, I, I didn't spend a lot of time in the hole. I did a few little stints in there. When I got down, if you got in a fight, we would go in a blind spot, get in a fight. If you, or you fight in your room or you fight in the bathroom. And back in the old days, old days, you didn't tell on each other. The new prison's kind of a lot different now, but back then you didn't tell on each other. So, so you just, you deal with your stuff and that was that. Yeah. So wild. It's a wild to think about how societies run because no matter where you are, no matter what your situation, tribes will find each other, societies will form, there'll be hierarchies. It's just the nature of humanity. And I find it all really, really interesting. How, how long was your, um, the, the first woman that took you under her wing, how long was she there for life as well? No, she was there. She did probably about 10 years with me, maybe 
maybe 10. And uh, she was just amazing. And it's so funny because I've looked for her so much since I've gotten out. I haven't found her yet, but I'm still looking, uh, <laughs> which means she's out of trouble doing great, which is, you know, great. And because I never seen her after she got out. But there was I had a best friend in there and uh, we're still best friends to this day. We've been we both had similar crimes. Um, we lived together off and on for 10 years as roommates and, and we just did a lot of stuff together. And she was probably my biggest impact. And uh, we did dog. We did puppies for parole. We did um, aerobics together. I mean, we just did everything together. And so she definitely seen the change in me. And she was the person I would go to a lot and be like, what can I change to make myself better? And she was the friend that says, you need to change this and make a list. I didn't always appreciate her list, but <laughs> I have a friend like that too. <laughs> yeah. We need those friends that are going to tell us the real deal. I mean, I would not have it any other way because somebody has to hold you accountable for you, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, so I just, I started getting involved in everything in prison. Um, I did the puppies for parole program where we trained from regular obedience to service dogs to help autistic children or court needs or, you know, veterans. Um, I became aerobics instructor also in 2004 and got my personal training certification, nutrition, and then I became the educator. So I started educating other people how to get certified. So I would work out from eight in the morning till eight at night and train dogs. And I just stayed busy all the time. Yeah. What's the percentage, would you say, of the women around you? who uh responded whose crime was really in response to domestic violence oh there's so many whether it was domestic violence and um they assaulted their staff or killed you know or spouse or killed one of the their loved ones um there i had a lot of friends that were even their mothers their own mothers that were abusive um i was in prison with gypsy rose so a lot a lot of people know her um was her yes the woman whose mother was poisoning her to build yes. wow that's a hell of a I story mean, she had a lot of attention but we had a couple of those that were there too for the same thing yeah. um lunch yeah. by proxy yeah and yeah. we had some that were there for killing their abusive father or you know who sexually assaulted them so i mean you just had an array of different people with different things and yeah, you just are surrounded yeah. by it. It's hard not to feel like those people are justified. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's yeah. it's a slippery slope in, in my brain. It's, it's so... It is a slippery shades. slope. It's just like mine, you know, I get a lot. Well, if he abused you like that, you know, well, good for you. But there's a part of me that, you know, I, I always did feel like it was me or him one day. But there is always a part of me that it, one is that he never got a chance to change and I did. Mm, wow, that's profound for sure. Were you still in prison when the officer who assaulted you in prison, uh, when another person was assaulted and they came to you? It, I was in county jail. So the jailer raped me in the county jail. He got promoted. I got locked down in my cell, phone shut off. I was allowed no visitors until I agreed that uh, it basically nothing happened. And 17 years later, I get a call from a detective from that same county jail it says, hey, this guy, Terry Zorns, now has a 14 year old victim. And we found all the evidence from when he raped you in jail. And I'm like, you mean you found that he hit it? that the sheriff hid all the evidence. She said, yes. And so um, what happened was it was on videotape, him coming in my cells and doing what he was doing, but he had erased some of it, but he forgot the clock on the wall. And that's what helped me. So they asked me, they asked if they could charge him with two forcible counts of rape, but they would drop him if he would plea agree to the 14 year old victim so that she would not have to get on the stand. And I agreed to that. And so he got a four-year sentence and went to prison. Four years. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I had buddies that he went to prison with. So just justice gets served a second time, I guess. Yeah. I, and I, I it's my understanding that for uh people that hurt children get a get a lot of uh they get attacked in prison and things. Yes. Uh, yeah. 
Net women or men, we don't deal with rapists, child molesters, or child killers. Yeah, as they say, a special place in hell for those kinds of somebody is burning up your phone. I know. I'm like, what is wrong with these people? Let me put this on, dude. There we go. Sorry. It's all good. I have nothing all day. And then I get on the phone and everybody's like, I mean, that's always how it is. How old are you in 2015 when the Supreme Court deems that it's unconstitutional that you have been given a life without parole? I was in my late 30s because I got out at 42. So I was 38 because I I think the law actually changed 2012. And I went back to court um, the first time and they hadn't decided about retroactivity or none of those things yet. Um, And I went back to court and I was getting ready to sign a life with parole judgment. And everybody agreed, the prosecutor, judge, lawyers and all of a sudden, last moment, the victims come in and said, no. And they, like, I was, like, literally getting ready to sign the paper. They pull it away. It says, it's not happening. So back to prison I go. And, uh, and I just started praying for my victims because I was like, I, I couldn't say I wouldn't be the same. You know, I, who's to know how many would be filled in that situation? So in 2015, however, uh, my co-defendant recanted their statements. And said she did not plan, she did not manipulate, she did not plot. I mean, my lawyers finally got them to sign the paperwork um, about how the police had the whole story together. This is what happened. And they were like, yeah, that's what happened. And then the abuse came out about, you know, all of a sudden we found statements that other people had made. That how he threatened me, how he tried to kill me, how I had black eyes, the restraining order. And then... The prosecutor or the sheriff that arrested me stood up and said, we should have never arrested her for first degree murder. This was uh, accessory to murder the entire time. And the prosecutor just basically had a heart on for a case that would get him judged. And I was it. So I was during the time that Pam Smart caught her case. So they were trying to make it look like hers because hers was that social media big blow up thing. and. I think my little town prosecutors thought that they, they were going to be doing something real big. Mm. As my jury members, I'm from such a small town where it happened that my jury members, two of them said I was guilty until I proved my innocence. Mm. And they had, nope. they had dinner with my victims right before my deliberations. My jury did. Uh, they should have been. Yeah. That means they should not have been in your jury. Obviously all that stuff came out. How? Yeah. Just it was a good old boy system down here. I was never treated legally. None of the stuff was done how it should have been done. And so when I went back to court in 2015, the prosecutor, judge and my attorneys all agreed to a 30 year sentence. And I got my sentence overturned. What was that moment like? Uh, I was like, okay, that's cool. But I so many times my bubble been bursted until I got a new face sheet, which tells you your time and when you get released. Because my outdate always said 99, 99, 99, 99, which means, you know, 9 million years you can get paroled. And it finally came back and was like 2017, 2015, you go to the parole board. So I went to the parole board and the whole parole board, they never, they asked me one question about my crime. Did I regret it? And of course, yes. That was the only one they asked me. Um, The rest of my parole hearing was about my media, how much media coverage I had on me. They were more concerned about what the media thought about me being at the parole board than they were about my actual crime. Hmm. So uh, I got a two-year setback. I got a two-year release date. Um, and I did that last two years and walked out November 22nd, day before Thanksgiving in 2017. When you are faced with an actual outdate versus an eternal outdate where you know you're not leaving, does it actually make it more difficult in a way? <laughs> uh, yeah, it made it a lot more difficult because before I had patience because that was my life. And I just let a lot of stuff slide because it's like, it's not even pick your battles wisely. Um, the, the last year, everybody was on my nerves. I was just ready to go home. I need out of here. And I had all these lofty ideas of what the world would be like. And they were lofty. <laughs> so <clears throat> I just, uh, every day was the countdown. It seemed like it went a lot slower 
when I had life without parole, the years were flying by. But as soon as I had an out date, it was slow, so slow. Yeah. yeah. What was the first thing you did when you got out? Um, I, I had to have knee surgery when I was in prison from playing basketball. Uh, <laughs> I tore my ACL playing basketball, so I had to go on an out count. Each time you go on an out count, you have handcuffs, shackled, shackled and black box. And there's a stop sign with a stoplight right outside the prison. And I said, if I ever get out of here, I'm going to run around the car as soon as I, if we hit the stoplight. Well, it turned red on the way out of the prison. And I jumped out of the car and I just started running around the car screaming, I'm free. So my mom's like, what in the world? And uh, they took me to Casey's uh, gas station and I immediately got a headache from all the color. Everything was so bright. And I've been in drab for, you know, 25 years. And my niece, my niece took me over and was like, well, what do you want to drink? And I was like, uh, water. Because all of a sudden here was this huge array of choices. I mean, I've been drinking the same thing for 25 years, and uh, and I wanted gum, gum, and something to drink. <laughs> and uh, she said, "Well, which one?" I looked, and I was like, "I don't care, just pick one." And it was very overwhelming. They handed me a cell phone. It kept vibrating. I didn't know what to do or how to answer it or what it was. Um, I only seen them on commercials on TV because when I got locked up, there was no cell phone, no internet, no nothing of that. So it was, and then, and then it took me home to my family who's all been sitting there waiting after 25 years. It's Thanksgiving the next day. And I walk in a room full of people I don't even know. And I just lost my, I just left the people I knew as my family behind. So it's pretty good. It was exciting, but difficult at the same time. I imagine very surreal. Yeah. Yeah. It was very surreal. And very sleeping, good. sleeping at night. The, for the first time, and not in a jail cell or in a prison cell, that has to be bizarre. Uh, I ended. I got in the bed, and it was so soft and so amazing when I first got there. But I had to get on the floor to sleep, and I had to turn a light on because it's never dark in prison, and the bunks are hard, and the mats are hard, and and so I had to do that. And every time I got to the, go to the bathroom in prison, when you push a button, it lasts for about three seconds. Water. And I kept leaving the water on. Every time I leave somewhere, I leave the water on. I'll be like, got to shut the water off. How long did it take for you to adjust? Well, not even the other day. I told my boyfriend was in the shower and I was like, watch the water. And I was like, I'm so sorry. So even still after three years, small things will happen. Um, the hardest parts for me, like choices, I ate hamburgers and chicken strips for the first six months. If anybody took me out to eat, cause I was afraid what to eat. Uh, the guy I met took me to subway and I almost had a meltdown because all of a sudden I had to make the sandwich and I didn't know how, uh, the sodas, I would have meltdowns, you know, where you go and you push the button and soda comes. I didn't know how they worked. And so I would stand there in almost tears wondering how do I turn this, you know, on? And I don't want to look stupid, but, you know, I don't want to ask somebody, how do you work this? And the first time the toilet flushed itself, I thought I was ready to fight. I didn't know who was in my stall, who just flushed my toilet, what just happened. So <laughs> it was, it's the small things that a lot of people take for granted. Um, walking barefooted on grass. We had to stay on sidewalks a lot. Uh, open the refrigerator in the middle of the night just to get something to drink. Having a long handled toothbrush, our toothbrushes were like two and a half inches long. They're shankless. Um, things like that, being able to turn the lights off and it be completely dark or, you know, not having a flat pillow and, and soft sheets and a, and a big comforter. It's not wool. So those little things are definitely was something to get used to. Uh, my mom took me the first week out to Walmart. And that was very overwhelming. And somebody bumped into me and I turned around and was like, what's up? And my mom's like, you're out. You, you're out. Because in prison, when people walk by you and shoulder check you, as we call it, that means we got an issue we need to take care of. Out here, people bump into you all the time. So you have to. And they're rude about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. They are, the airport's the worst. <laughs> oh, they're so rude. About it. In prison, it's all about respect. And and loyalty and out here it is not and so i'm still adjusting to 
people, judgmental ways, um, the unloyalty, the the disrespect, and I just I had to stay humbled. As a person with a felony record, was it hard to integrate into society? Uh, and on the bigger picture, obviously that's a you know the smaller picture of family and hearth and things. But then you have to go out and become a productive member of society again. Um, how was that transition? Um, when I first got out day two, I was finding a job and I got a job at a, uh, a dog place because, you know, I did dog training inside. So I thought, oh, I want to work at an animal shelter. And after a week, I had to leave because the first dog they had me, which was strangely enough, was my inmate number was his number. And I thought, okay, that's weird. But the clanging of the dog kennels and constant and how they're lined up, it felt like prison. And I couldn't stay there. Um, and then after that, it was just really hard to get a job. So I actually had to go to the state of Arkansas to finally get a job. Because I came back to the same community the crime happened in. So everybody knew who I was. As soon as I call and be like, hey, I'm Sheena, you know, and I can hear the voice change. I could hear, oh, you know, nope, we're not hiring. And you have a, I'm hiring right outside the window. What do you, you know? But um, so I went to Arkansas and I started working for a gym. I managed a gym, a tanning salon business, and was doing real well. And then I started school as an esthetician. And so after I finished that, I moved back here and and, uh, I left that job. And since then, it's been almost impossible to find a job. I couldn't Mm. even get hired at Burger King. Because of your record? Yep. Even though it's almost 30 years ago. And I'm very honest when I go to an employer. I'm like, I want to be honest. I'm on parole. You know, this is what happened. And I get all the time. I understand. I would have killed him too. That is their words they will say to me. And because I'm very open about what happened, how it happened. And because I don't want my PO to show up to my job one day and be like, so she didn't tell you she's on parole. And so because um, I try to follow the guidelines of my parole and and every time yeah, I get skipped over, it was so hard to find a place to rent. They don't rent to felons to find your own place to, you know, um, to get anything it done. It's so frustrating to hear things like that. And I know that that's absolutely what happens because how, if people pay their debts to society, how are they supposed to become functioning members of society if the society refuses to acknowledge the fact that they've paid their debt and now need to come into, it's not like they're going to make you the president of, you know, that Elon Musk company or something, but for God's sake, you you've got to feed yourself. This is why people reoffend, right? It's because it becomes easier to be in prison than it is to be in the outside world. The because outside world to, becomes the prison. They have to find a way to survive. And so they start selling drugs or they start boosting. They start doing all these things because nobody will hire them. Right. So when you got kids to feed and it's Christmas time or any of those things and you can't find a job, you can't find a place to rent, they go back to their old ways. And uh, it happens so often. And that is why I started the nonprofit group that I'm doing now. Just talk about that. Yeah. Um, Well, my boyfriend and I was here and I was really depressed. I went through a really bad depression um, with the rejection of a job every day, getting depressed just for no reason, Um, feeling like my family I love so much is still sitting behind bars. And I'm trying to get to know this new family that I don't know. Um, and no matter where you go, you don't, you don't fit in. You feel like you're the outcast and, uh, because people don't get it. So we were sitting here. I was like, prison did not break me. I'm not going to let it break me. And all of a sudden I was like, there's gotta be more of me. So I made a Facebook group. Prison did not break me. And within four months we had, you know, a thousand people. It's been almost six months. We have almost 1600 people now and it's just growing. We basically get about 200 members every month from all over. I mean, I've got people from Africa to, you know, all over the world, not just United States. And it's, but it's not only for us, it's for families too. It's not just for ex inmates. It's for, if I parole to you, you're in our group too, because you might need to know how to help me. So our mission statement is to eventually what we're doing is helping inmates come back in society with support, but we're going to help the families help them transition. 
these are things not to do. These are triggers. These are things that may be too much stress. These are things that you may see them go through. This is how you can help them. So currently I'm building a curriculum and we're going to take it into the prisons. So say you're getting paroled out. I would go sit with your mother and say, here's a little booklet. These are the things you can expect when your daughter comes home or son. These are triggers. These are things that could send them back. Because I think it's just as important to have the family ready for the ex-inmate as it is for the inmate to come out. And I want, and we eventually want to take a team and go back in the prisons and talk about the reality of coming out of prison. Because in prison, they make it sound so great when you get out. But, and oh, these places will hire you and you can find rent here. That's not how it is. And we want to make sure that when people come out, like me, I don't have all these expectations that are never going to be met because I was fed all this BS. So we want to go back in the prisons and let people know, hey, you're going to struggle with trying to get a cell phone the right time. You're trying, you're going to struggle getting a job. You're going to struggle getting rent. But our group's here to help you. And and our ultimate goal is to change the stigma of how people look at inmates. We made bad decisions. We're not bad people. Now there are bad people in prison, don't get me wrong. I've met some. Of course. Sure, of course. But yeah. you probably have your few out of, you know, very few that are really just evil people. Sure. There are irredeemable people in walking around in everyday life as well. They're not just in prison. They just haven't been caught. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most of the guards we had there were like, I'd be here myself if I hadn't got caught. So and there's lots of guards, you know, that, that, that were good. And there's lots that are jerks that, you know, there's guards in there that make a difference. And there's guards in there that makes people. That are power crazy. trip. Yeah. And, and worse. And people can go to prison and come out animalistic. But when you go in and you decide you have a choice, and that's what I used to teach people all the time. And I still try today. You have a choice. And every choice, you're going to get a good at reaction or you're going to get a bad. So. That, like I said, that class taught me accountability and responsibility. And once you start taking accountability for your own actions, you can change anything. And so I don't let my past define me. And I tell everybody, your past does not have to define you. It's never too late to be who you're meant to be. So I know that my goal in life, I evidently did all this time to help other people come out of prison. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm currently getting my bachelor's in business administration. I just graduated at esthetician school last year. Um, I have the prison did not break me group. I'm releasing my book soon. I keep telling everybody it's coming out soon, but I've been trying to just really work out the kinks. And, uh, and it's not my life story yet. I'm not quite ready for that to all come out because it's still emotions, a lot of emotions. So what is the book about prison etiquette? Don't take the chips. So it's going to be about if you went to prison or you're curious about prison, maybe you watched the orange is a new black. It is not really how life is. Um, that's federal prison, <laughs> which we all call kitty camp. Um, state prison is more. I kind of watched a few shows of Wentworth, probably closer to what really happens in prison. Uh, but the book is like small things like this happens in prison. People will sit on a top bunk and you're on the bottom bunk eating your ramen soup and they will clip their toenails. This is not what you do. This will get you jerked off a top bunk and will get you beat up. So don't do those. I mean, it's just common sense, you would think, but you would not, you would, well, maybe not be shocked at how many people don't have manners. (laughs) Well, I'm just going to put this out there anyway. Never, ever, ever clip your nails in bed. End of story. (laughs) That is gross. Well, and you know, in our in prison, our beds is our living room, our bedroom, yeah. our closet. It's it's our bunk is everything. So you know, you have to respect it. Uh, simple as stepping on a bottom bunk to get on your top bunk and leaving a footprint with your bare foot on another person's bed could cause a fight. Um, combing your hair is a big one in prison. If you're combing your hair and you're, you know how our hair falls out. Uh, a lot of people think that's rude. Comb your hair in the bathroom. Um, there's a lot of rules, and you better follow ours before you ever follow the CO's department. <laughs> that makes because sense. Yeah, you might go the hole there, but you could get hurt if you don't follow ours. Right, right. I'm just, I'm just to get on the hair thing, my best friend Ellen just now probably smiled really big. She's like, yes, I'm sure she absolutely <laughs> agreed with that statement. <laughs> 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> that is a big thing in prison. Do not brush your hair in the room if your hair falls out and it that's on their bed. And yeah, it's a it's a big issue in prison. So prison etiquette is also I'm gonna, you know, share some of the slang we use. Bird dogging. That means you're watching for the police. You know, if two people are fighting, I might bird dog, make sure the police ain't coming. So you you can fight. Um, so it's 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 kind of a funny book because we tell people all the time when they come in prison, they they have a video they have you watch. It says, "Don't take the chips," because if I offer you something, know that you're going to pay it back. Either it's going to be two for one, or you're going to do a favor for me. You're going to, or you could end up in a, a sexual relationship you never wanted to be in, all over a bag of chips. So that really happens. Yes, that really happens. Wow. So chips for a little slap and tickle. Yeah. Yeah. Ramen yeah. soups. They're only 30 cents. I've seen people have sex for a ramen soup. <laughs> well, I didn't see them have sex, but I know people that have. Because they don't have enough in their commissary. And so. Yeah. Unless you have people from home sending you money, you live on a one bar state soap, a Bob Barker toothpaste, and the chow hall is, of course, awful. Um, the people that work there often take the food, if, especially our kitchen workers. It was a punishment to be in kitchen. So staff would eat there as well as inmates. So a lot of people would do, I mean, you'd find band-aids in your food. They found a roll of tissue in a food full of stuff. I mean, and so you, you just, you want a ramen soup if that's what you have to have. Yeah. Wow. How did you, how are you dealing with PTSD post? release yeah the post-traumatic stress disorder um you know i've had moments my friend bless her heart decided we should go to black friday my first year out <laughs> bad idea so i went to walmart and everybody's standing around me looking like they're getting ready to take off you know when they blow this whistle and i remember being at the exit door um about to have a meltdown and the lady was like hon that's just for emergency and i was like uh this is an emergency you need to get me out of the store and my boyfriend happened to call me and this is how i've gotten through it he did two tours in iraq and so he had dealt with his ptsd depression anxiety and so he is able to see a trigger and he's able to, hey, we're here. It's okay. You're fine. Um, I still have triggers of abuse even uh, from my husband that I have to, you know, something can be said a certain way. Things, and I still deal with that. I did start counseling not just about three weeks ago. I called a counselor and I said, I need to start talking to somebody. I, I don't want to do this by myself anymore because evidently I haven't got it figured out because I'm a type A personality um, and I want to control everything. So, <laughs> because I've had not had control for so many years. And um, so now I'm talking to somebody and that's helping a lot too. I'm glad to hear that. That's great. I'm, I'm a big fan. I think therapy is a wonderful, wonderful gift that <laughs> the world has. Well, I did, I did it for five years in prison. Um, around that 2001, I took that class. I also did five years of intensive therapy. Um, and it helped a lot. And I was like, you know, I just need to get back to that place. In prison, I had purpose. And I let people laugh all the time because they always say, you were like Beyonce in prison because everybody knew who I was before they were in prison. Even the county jails, the officers knew me. Everybody knew who Sheena was. And because uh, I was involved in everything positive. And I got out and all of a sudden I was just a person went to prison for murder an ex-con and I had no purpose and when you go from a and it and it's almost like people coming home from war they were structured they had purpose they knew what to do every day you get out here you don't know what to do every day everything's unpredictable and then we had COVID hit and that just made it what is crazy. that is that the dog again yeah he's got a cold and he keeps coughing they keep following me in prison i'd have three it's funny because i had three dogs at a time in prison and i trained them and my friends see my dogs now and they're not trained they got a little bit of training and i was a master dog trainer where i trained other trainers how to train dogs and had yeah. three dogs at a time and they come over and they're like friend because that's what everybody calls each other in prison friend you have to clarify if you're friend or girlfriend so friend is the word we all use and so they're like your dogs are not trained. What is going on? <laughs> do, do you know who Zach Scow is? 
who? Zach Scow. Pause. Pause. Positive change. P A W S. It's um. It's a prison dog training thing. He was on the show in my first year. I wasn't sure if maybe you'd know him, but I love that dogs are. It's, dogs are so healing. I love that they are allowed to come into prison and and give a purpose. It, it was. We got to keep him in our cell, and um. We, you know, they had kennels, they slept in at night and they were our job and it opens emotions when you're in prison, you close yourself off to feeling because, um, like me, I cut my family off for years because I thought I was going to die there. So I felt like I was doing them a favor and I couldn't live in both worlds. I couldn't live out here and in there with that kind of time because it was just too depressing. And as time went on, uh, the dogs, you get colder, you know, you get tired of the same thing every day and the dogs all of a sudden wake your emotions up and they teach people how to feel. And the great thing about a, that program, especially for mothers who maybe were addicts or fathers who were addicts, it teaches them to care for a living thing that depends on them. They got to feed them. They've got to, you know, you know, structure for them. And so it teaches you much more valuable lessons than just training dogs. And uh, I have a book that I eventually will release, and that's called Everything I Learned About God Training Dogs. And so um, it, it's amazing. It's an amazing program for prison. I think every prison should have it. I agree with you 100%. I'm curious, have you ever since release spoken with Tim's family? Have you been able to... No, not at all, um, which is weird because we live probably 20 minutes away. I haven't even ran into them. Um, and it was a fear of mine. But they eventually agreed to my release, from my understanding, uh, because I got in a two-week window between the retroactive and not. Because there's a lot of other juveniles still sitting, waiting for that ruling to come down. Um, and my lawyers and the sheriff and everybody just working it all out. My victims had to agree for me to get my sentence overturned. So I don't know if they're just, you know, let it be, but I've always opened myself up if they ever had questions, if they ever needed to talk to me, that I would always be open to that. Um, but I have sent a message before I got out of prison that I was very sorry for their pain and loss. And if there was, if I could have changed it, I wish I could. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not something that you will ever be okay with. That will always be when somebody goes to prison for something like this. I don't think people realize we may get released physically, but mentally we will always live with the fact that because of us, somebody is no longer here and that prison will remain with you for the rest of your life. Yeah, I imagine so. Sheena, wow, what a what a experience. And um, I'm glad that you are doing all that that stuff with prisoners. And when will the book come out, the first book? Oh, it was supposed to be out last year, but it's been a mess with everything going on. Um, I'm kind of just tweaking the end of it. So hopefully within the next six months, we'll be out. Okay, how might people find you if they want to talk to you about any of the stuff that we've discussed this evening? We're, we're on, we have a, a website on uh, prisondidnotbreakme.org. We're on Instagram, prisondidnotbreakme. We're on TikTok, prisondidnotbreakme. Well, I'm under Sheena Renee on TikTok. And my Facebook group is prisondidnotbreakme. So, uh, and then they can also email me at prisondidnotbreakme at gmail.com. And I'll make sure all those links for sure are on the heyhumanpodcast.com website. I'm uh, really proud of you. I am. And I don't know if it makes a difference from a person yes. you just met, you know, an hour ago, but it's, you know, looking back on who we are when we're that age and knowing that everything you did, every step you took, even though you went through walls to get there, you know, that's huge accomplishment. It's huge. Thank you. Yeah. I do appreciate that. Even if it's somebody I met an hour ago, I know that, I just, I want people to realize that, yes, I made a really bad choice. And, and at a time in my life, um, we often use drugs as an excuse for alcohol. And we were drug induced, but we still have to be aware of our choices, no matter Absolutely. what. Absolutely. And had Tim lived and, and grown into a, you know, a full fledged adult, perhaps he would have also had an arc of life that brought him into a, a better 
situation as well. That's always my regret. Like I said earlier was, you know, I, I got the chance to change. He didn't. And yeah. I always live with that. And, and uh, I just know that if I could change it, I would, but I can't, but I can change myself and help hopefully other people not do the same thing. I eventually want to go into high schools and talk to teenagers and juvenile facilities as well and talk about your choices do impact you for life. Even the smallest choice can impact you. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I obviously can't speak for Tim or, or for you for that matter, but to think of all of the change that you have facilitated and uh, how much work you've done and helping other people that, you know, wherever he is, I'm sure he is in some way. I know that sounds weird, but probably proud to be a part of that. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. that. Thank you for talking with me and uh, for yes. being so open. And uh, absolutely. And yeah, that's keep, if anybody contacts me, I'm very transparent. I don't mind asking, answering questions. People read a lot of the media stuff, and I tell them all the time, just ask me. I'll tell yeah. you because what they printed isn't even close. So <laughs> that was for sales. <laughs> so yeah, I get that. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, um, hopefully somebody will reach out and uh, I'm actually want to read your book. So I'm looking forward to that. Will you let me know? Because when it does come out, I can add it to the links page uh, retroactively yeah. and awesome. let people I'll know. You, I'll send you a copy signed, especially, especially for you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.